12, 6 and 7 is going to be sort of my springboard text this morning. I don't usually teach a topical sermon, but it's going to be on the Word of God, and it's just infallibility. And so this is our introduction. Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. You can be seated. This week I um, had a little bit too much time on my hands. Um, with Tracy being gone and Brendan gone. Uh, so my study went in divergent directions. I was going to start the book of Nehemiah, and when I read the first chapter of Nehemiah, I started thinking about the time frame of Nehemiah, and it coincides with the time of Ezra and the departure of the Jewish people, and that got me thinking about, well, how did they leave, which got me thinking, well, how did they get into captivity, got me thinking about, well, how did the Babylonians come to power, how did they depose the Assyrians, and finally I said, I better stop. <laughs> so I'm going to back up for the book of Nehemiah all the way back to the Assyrian Empire this morning, and I'm going to try to, to wed for us a picture of Israel's history from about 733 B.C. up until Jesus comes back. <laughs> so this is going to be a, a, a quite a, a stab here for me. But what really got me thinking is I watched a, a video clip of a Mormon. I'm sorry. I don't know what made me say that. A Muslim. And this Muslim man was afraid of the Bible. He feared it because if he was caught with one, he would be executed. If he believed its teaching, he would be executed. But yet he had this, this curiosity about it. But he was being trained to be a militant and... And he knew that he shouldn't even be having these thoughts. So he tried to repress them. And he would say, those people who bring the Bible, they are my enemy. And as a good militant jihadist, I have got to do everything that I can to stop their mission. And a friend of his had converted to Christianity. And he didn't know it. And his friend brought him a Bible, and he said, why are you doing this? He says, I want you to read it. He says, you know that if I'm caught with this, I'll be killed. And he says, if anybody believes this book, they will be killed. And his friend then confessed to him that he was a believer in the Jesus of the Bible. And he became enraged, and he says, you know it's my duty to kill you. And he said, I, I realize that. He says, but it's worth it. He says, my friendship to you is worth that. And he, that was something that, that 
as a jihadist and as a devout Muslim, he had never heard. The whole concept of friendship and love was devoid in his religion. So he, he reluctantly took the Bible and took it to his apartment, but put it under his bed, stuffed it between the mattress, and wouldn't pull it out. And finally, after a couple of days, he began to, to read through it, to read through the New Testament. And he was enthralled with the Sermon on the Mount. It was so radically different. If someone strikes you on the cheek, you are to turn the other cheek? If somebody hates you, you are to pray for them? If you have an enemy, you are to love them? He, it was concepts that he'd never heard of. And he found himself praying to Allah, asking Allah if this book was true. And he says, I want to know. And he went through this journey for about five years, and then he went to his imam and explained his struggle. They told him to bring the Bible and to burn it. So he did. He, he brought the Bible in, and they burned it in front of him. But the Spirit of God kept working on his heart. And what really convinced him was the last few verses of John's Gospel, that these miracles were written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because under his religious system, there was no way you could ever know for sure if God was upset with you or if God was pleased with you. And no way of ever saying that God loved you. He said that there were over 90 words to describe Allah, but none of them about compassion or love or long-suffering, the God of the Bible. And uh, when he confessed Christ, um, he, he immediately had to flee the country and somehow got into Pakistan, through Pakistan, got into Turkey, and then got out of Turkey and made his way to America. But the Word of God, we take it for granted. We don't want to uh, turn it into an idol. It is a means to which we have a relationship with God. But the Bible, in some ways, is, is an extension of, of God's personality, his love. It's a and I think that's why it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Lagos. That, that when God created, God created with his word. Uh, there's something mystical, I, I want to say, and spiritual that's unexplainable about the Bible. C.S. Lewis said that we don't always have to convince the opponent of the validity of our religion. We just have to give them the Bible and turn it loose, and it will do its work. And so this morning, I really want nothing more than just instill or instill in you a reverence and an awe for the Bible and a desire to, to 
ingest it, to meditate long and deep on it, and to let it change your life. Um, I had a, a study this week with a couple of men, and we were talking about how Jesus picked 12 so that he might be with them. And he says, I want to be with them so that I might send them. And we discussed how just being with Jesus is not an end in itself. It is a means to know him so that we can go and proclaim him. And the Bible is the same way. It is not an end in itself. We get to know the Bible so that we can get to know God, so that our lives are transformed, so that we might impact the world around us, so that we might hold forth the word of life to people. So I'm going to start in about 733 B.C. with a king named Tigath-Pileser. He was the king of Assyria. And he was going to invade the land of Palestine, advancing his kingdom. And he had a puppet king named Menhenian of Israel. And he said, I'm going to destroy you or you're going to pay taxes to me. And the king of Israel was wise enough to know that his army could not repel him. So he exacted 37 tons of silver from the king of Israel. But that got a little weighty every year, 37 tons, more than we could imagine. And so he decided he was going to revolt. And so the king of Assyria says, you're not going to revolt. I'm going to have you put to death, and I'm going to install my own king, Pekiah. Well, Pekiah, same thing. The, the taxes got too heavy for him. And so the king of Assyria then decides, I'm going to have my own coup, and I'm going to raise up this guy named Hoshea, and he's going to be my vassal king over the land of Israel. And so Tigath-Pileser passes the scene, and Shalmaneser the Great becomes the king. And Shalmaneser the Great is no one to mess with. But Hoshea, after nine years, says, I can't come up with these taxes anymore, and so I can't rebel against the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser the Great, because he's too powerful but I know another king in Egypt who's also under the thumb of Assyria, and he doesn't like it. The two kingdoms together, we can throw off the shackles of the power of Assyria. Now, all this is collaborated by the chronicles that are found in a library in the ancient city of Nineveh. They're also found and recorded for us in the book of 1st Kings. I'm sorry, 2nd um, Kings. So Hoshea makes an alliance with the king of Egypt. And this is in about 724 BC. And so the king of Assyria comes and he says, I've had enough of Israel. Everyone that I install who's supposed to be a loyal vassal to me, who's to pay my taxes, I'm done with you guys. I am going to destroy this city. I'm going to destroy the entire nation. And I'm going to repopulate Samaria with people from Babylon, from people from Mesopotamia, from people from what is now 
um, southern Turkey. I'm going to bring all these people, and I'm going to put them in the land of Samaria, and I'm not going to have any more problems with you guys. And that siege lasted for three years. It was finished off in 722 B.C. by Sargon the Great, or Sargon the Second. And that's found in your Bible, if you want to write this reference down, it's 2 Kings 17, verse 24. And now the next great empire that Daniel predicts is going to come is the Babylonian Empire. And historians cannot understand how quickly the Assyrian Empire went off the scene. And it, it happened in the year 612 B.C., the capital was the city of Nineveh. So just knowing that helps you understand the book of Jonah. Where was Jonah supposed to go? He was to go to that great city, Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. There's no way he's going to go and preach God's mercy. He would rather get on a boat and flee and go the opposite direction. So that helps us understand why he didn't want to go to the city of Nineveh. But the city of Nineveh fell under Nebopolisar, he was the, the, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And so they moved their capital from the upper Tigris to the upper Euphrates River to a place called Carchemish. Well, Israel is gone. It's been repopulated from people everywhere, but Judah is still hanging in there. Judah has several good kings intermittent between these horrible kings. And there's a good king during the reign or during the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah named Josiah. Now, Josiah doesn't like the Babylonians because he knows of a prophecy given by Isaiah when Hezekiah was the king that the Babylonians are going to carry all of their treasures off to Babylon one day. So he thinks in his mind that somehow he can thwart the efforts of the king of Babylon. Because the king of Babylon and the king of Egypt now are in cahoots to throw off the Assyrians at the city of Carchemish. So in 609 B.C., the Egyptians start their way up and they're going through Israel, through Judah, to stop this battle from ensuing. And Josiah says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to meddle with something I don't need to be meddling with. And he didn't say that, but that's what the king of Egypt said to him. He says, you're sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. And sure enough, Josiah was killed. He was the last godly king. And we find that Jeremiah, the prophet, mourns and laments his death. And that's found in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 35, 25. And this is a historical fact that, that Josiah was killed in that battle to prevent the Battle of Carchemish from happening. Well, the Battle of Carchemish did happen, and the Babylonians became the new superpower of the world. And they quickly put Judah under tribute. And Judah, like Israel, their treacherous sister, began to rebel, one king after another. And so they are deported quickly after the city of Carchemish falls in 606 B.C. But there's something interesting going on with Jeremiah, the prophet, and, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But Jeremiah, he's encouraging defection to the Babylonians. 
And so Jeremiah is looked as an enemy of the state because he is encouraging people to, to, to pray for the peace of Babylon, to go to Babylon, build houses there, find your wife, live for God, and pray for the peace of the Babylonians, and that you will find your peace. And so Jeremiah is shut up in prison, lowered down into a cistern, left to die. But this first captivity is when Daniel is taken captive. The book of Daniel is all in this setting. All of this is happening together, and these books of the Bible are intertwined, and their prophecies and the history are all connected and interconnected. So in 605-606 B.C., Daniel and his three friends are carried off to captivity, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to find the brightest, most intelligent young men that I can train. I'm going to change their diet. I'm going to change their language. And I'm going to change their religion. I'm going to call Daniel Belteshazzar. I'm going to name Hananiah, um, Meshach, Azariah, uh, and uh, Hannah, Azariah, and Mishael. These are all godly names, by the way. Daniel is God is my judge. Azariah, Hazar, means uh, um, helper. Ebenezer, here I, Eben is the stone of my help. So Azariah means Yahweh, the Hebrew covenant God, that's my, my Savior. Hanan is the Hebrew word for grace. Yahweh again, Hananiah. God is gracious. Mashel, El is the word for the short for Elohim. El, God, who is my God. And they're given these pagan, godly, godless names, brainwashing. And it doesn't, doesn't take on these guys, praise God. And we know the story of the book of Daniel somewhat. But it's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels of the treasure to the house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar instructed the king's court that I want the most intelligent, most instructable men that I can find. But the rebellion continues and so another king after another king, and finally Zedekiah has his eyes put out and has his children slain right before him. I mean, the, boy, you want to read something that's exciting, some good stuff. You don't need to find some fiction. The Bible is full of incredible stories. And when they came in, Second Chronicles 39, 19, 36, 19 says, They burnt the house of God. They broke down the wall. And this is important for understanding the book of Nehemiah. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned it. They burnt all the palaces with fire. They destroyed all the godly vessels thereof. So the destruction was complete in 586 B.C. The captivity began in 606 B.C. Those are important dates. So try to keep in mind because we're going to do some, a little bit of math, a little, just a little bit of math. Just subtraction mainly. <laughs> so um, the destruction was in 586. And I want you to see how accurate and how infallible God's word is. Jeremiah 25, 11. And the whole land shall be desolate and an astonishment. And these nations and Judah will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now here's something that shows you how accurate and how 
amazing the Bible is. Seventy years. Is that just symbolic? No, it was a literal 70 years. And when Jesus Christ is coming back, I think and I am persuaded and I am convinced that Jesus Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. God doesn't speak in mysteries all the time in prophecy. Sometimes they're just exactly what it means. Now, why was 70 years important? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, and this is how it all ties together. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 34, God says, I will scatter you among the heathen. If you decide to rebel, I will scatter you among the heathen. God has done this already with Israel, hasn't he? Now he's done it with Judah. And your cities will lie desolate. And listen to this part. The land will enjoy her Sabbaths as long as the land lays desolate. If you take 490 years back from when it was destroyed, it goes back to the time that they rejected God as their king. Exactly. When they demanded their own king and when they rejected God as their king, they no longer observed the Sabbath rest, and God said, I'm going to make it up in all one go. Now, let's do our math. 606 is when they were first taken into captivity. There's another prophecy that we need to, to kind of bring into the picture here. Let me read another passage in 2 Chronicles 36.21 that confirms this is the principle that Jeremiah was getting at. And then the, those that escaped by the sword were carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him, and their sons reigned until the king of Persia. It was in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So the Bible confirms what I'm saying, that yes, this is the purpose of Jeremiah's 70 years of captivity, to give this period of rest, just as Leviticus, the law, demands. So now, at 586, how are the Babylonians going to end this captivity? They're not. This is where it really gets even more interesting. The rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. Historians, again, are just dumbfounded on how easily the Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you read the Persian history of this, it confirms the book of Daniel chapter 5. It's, it's, it's incredible how secular history and the Bible go hand in hand this book is not a fable. It's no story tale. This is reality. And this is the exciting thing. So the Assyrians, I'm sorry, the, the Medo-Persians tell that the night that they conquered the city of Babylon, it was so easy because the king and all of his lords were banqueting and were drunken. Now, what do we find in the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 5. 
Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, he says, bring in all the instruments and we're going to worship the gods of gold, the gods of silver, the gods of iron, the gods of bronze, and the gods of wood, and we are going to drink out of the vessels of the God of Yahweh out of Israel, and we are going to worship our gods and we're going to mock the gods of Daniel. And you've all heard the expression, you see the handwriting on the wall. This is where it comes from, Daniel chapter 5. And the king starts to quake and shake, and none of his soothsayers can interpret it. But Daniel comes in, and Daniel says, I'll tell you what that says. It says, King, you've been put in the balance, and you've been weighed, and you don't make the cut. Tonight, your kingdom is over. The Persians had diverted the river Euphrates that flows under the wall, the water level had come down, and the army marches right under the wall and walks right into the city and takes it that night. And Cyrus the Great, at the age of 62, becomes the king of this new global empire, the Medo-Persia Empire. Now, why is that important? It's important because one 150 years before Cyrus ever existed, Isaiah gets a vision. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28, let me read this for you. The Lord says of Cyrus, God calls him out by name before he's even born. The Lord says to Cyrus, you are my shepherd, you will perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and saying to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Every jot, every tittle is God's breath, and every one of them is without error. Our Bible is perfect. God called him by name, and God says this is what he's going to do. He's going to say the foundation of the temple is laid. This is so interesting because Cyrus has been given a name and a task to do. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that when Cyrus became the king, he instantly had an affinity for King David. And he's, I mean, not King David, for Daniel the prophet. He has heard about Daniel. He's heard, it's legendary the things that Daniel has done. What God is doing through Israel, what they refuse to do as his people, he's doing it through the dispersion. Nebuchadnezzar professes that God is the God of the world. Cyrus the Great is doing the same thing, and he says, I want to counsel with Daniel. And Josiah tells him that Daniel reads to him this prophecy, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give a decree for the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. And this is where we have archaeology that comes in. Has anybody ever heard of the Cyrus Cylinder? The Cyrus Cylinder is actually in a museum in Britain. It's written in cuneiform. And on that cylinder, they have found the decree of Cyrus the Great given in 538 B.C., granting all the nations to go back and rebuild their temples. Now, it's interesting. Isaiah says, 
He's going to say, lay the foundation. Now, when the Jews got back, if you take the book of Ezra, they got back in 536. The decree is given 538. takes a couple years to get back and get back to work. They laid the foundation in 536. They were taken captive the first time in 606. Subtract 70 years from that, and you come right out to 536, and the foundation was laid. But here's the interesting part. That's all the farther they got. They quit. A conspiracy was, was hatched. They say, go back and read the records. You read about this city of Jerusalem. You let them rebuild this temple. They're not going to stop there. They're going to want to rebuild their walls. And not only that, king, you're going to lose your revenue, and you're going to lose power, and you're going to lose control. So he looks through the old chronicles. He says, you know what? This was a powerful empire at one time. It was so powerful at one time. They had a king that ruled over us. We'd better not let them do it. And so the work was stopped in 536. Twenty years later comes a prophet named Haggai. And he scolds them. He says, how long are you going to live in your fancy paneled houses? And God's temple just lays in ruins. They got back to work and they finished the temple. They finished the temple in 516 B.C. When did Nebuchadnezzar destroy it? 586 B.C. 586 minus 70 comes out to 516 B.C. God's word is so meticulously accurate that we can trust it for everything you and I need. This is so encouraging. Now, how and when he toppled the empire, we, we've gone through that. And now we just want to look at the reign of Cyrus. The reign of Cyrus um, was a, a reign that that um, allowed foreign nations a great amount of freedom and encouraged them to seek their own gods. And, and the, the Persians had a philosophy of, of just let live. And if we let these people have a little bit of, of independence, a little bit of freedom, our kingdom's going to gel together and, and we can sort of coexist, I guess you might say. And they're going to pray to their gods for me, and my kingdom's going to flourish. So that was kind of his, his thinking. But he also knew that if I give them too much independence, that it can backfire. So he gives them a, just a little bit of freedom, and so the first group of Jews go back in 538, a second group goes back under Ezra, and a third group goes back under Nehemiah. So Nehemiah starts out in, the, in 445 B.C., and he hears about the distress of his people. He's under the impression that they have gone back, they've rebuilt the temple, They've rebuilt the walls. Things are flourishing back there in, in Jer Jerusalem. But the construction had completely stopped. The temple had been built. 
But the walls of the city had been burned. They had gotten no farther. And, and he knew that it was very, very unusual for any king to allow you to go back and rebuild your walls because that much independence could give them the notion that they can throw off the, this, the, uh, the authority of the Persian Empire. And so God had to do some things providentially behind the scenes. And the number one thing that he did, Artaxerxes is the king now of Persia. His father was saved. His life was rescued by a man named Mordecai. It was written in the chronicles of the kings of Persia, written down in their, in their record books. The king can't sleep one night. And he says, bring me out those, those chronicles, those boring books. You read them to me and they'll put me to sleep. And they read to him this dude named Mordecai saved his life. He says, what did we ever do for this guy, Mordecai? He says, nothing. What? He says, oh, by the way, there's a gallows in Haman's backyard. They're going to hang him on. He says, no way. And he calls in old Haman. I mean, great story. You ladies know the book of Esther. It's awesome, isn't it? So who was Artaxerxes' mama? Esther. So this guy, Artaxerxes, his dad was saved by a Jew named Mordecai. His mother is Esther. His most trusted confidant is Nehemiah. He's on his inner circle and trusts him so much that he's his cupbearer. So God brought all these things together. One other thing that's interesting that he doesn't know about that Daniel actually prophesied that Artaxerxes was going to let the Jewish people go back and rebuild their temple. He doesn't even know that. Daniel's prophecy is so specific that those who reject the Bible say it must have been written after the fact. But they have one problem, and that is when you come to when the Messiah was killed. They can't explain that one. How in the world would, even if you give it a second century date, that he would know exactly how and when the Messiah. So the book of Daniel is, is such an amazing book. So Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, he says a decree is going to be given to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it simplify it just for the sake of, of mathematics because you've got to convert solar years into lunar years because that's what the Jews use. So Daniel says there's 490 years for my people, for the Jewish nation, for God finally to clean things up to give you a new heart, to make reconciliation of sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and for the Messiah, the Prince, to reign. There's 490 years that God's going to have to 
clean things up and get my people their act together. Now he says, 49 of those years, it's going to be troublesome times building the walls. Add 62 more years, or 62 more sevens, which comes out to 434 years, Messiah is going to come and he is going to be cut off and crucified. So you take, and we're going to round the number off to make it simple for us. 450 B.C. is about the time when Cyrus, I mean, when Artaxerxes says, go back and rebuild the walls. There's 483 years from that time period until Jesus Christ comes the first time. That comes out to exactly 33 A.D. We know approximately when Jesus Christ died on the cross. I say approximately because Luke is not real specific. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry. Tiberius had a co-regency with his father for three years. So it could have been when he started his reign in 11 B.C., and he had 15 years to that. The 15th year of his reign would have been 26 A.D. I'm sorry, A.D. Or when Caesar Augustus died, and probably that's what he means, and so that would be 29 A.D. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3, I think it's in verse 15 or 16, he says, and Jesus began his ministry being about 30 years of age. So if Jesus was, say, 30 years and 9 months old, about 30 or 31, somewhere in that neighborhood, that's exactly when Jesus would have been crucified. And Daniel tells the exact year, dating it when, I keep saying Cyrus, Artaxerxes gave that decree. Now, you're saying, Pastor, you said that there were 490 years. You've only talked about 483 Jesus was crucified the 483 after the decree. There's seven years still unaccounted for, right? We know those seven years as the great tribulation. Now, how does this all fit together? How does this make sense? The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that there's going to be a movement toward a one-world government, one-world religion all under what is called the beast or the Antichrist. Jesus describes this period as a time of desolation. So that seven years that is still left vacant, I believe, is the Great Tribulation. Now, why so long? What's in between? The church age was never understood, even by the apostles themselves. It wasn't later until the apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians that the church was understood. You remember when Jesus told his apostles, he says, you shall receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will go to Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. They turn to Jesus and they say, oh, We get it. You're the Messiah. You're resurrected. Everything's finished. Will you then bring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, no. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But we can look at the fig tree, can't we? 
And we can look at the leaves and we can know that our redemption is drawing near. Daniel tells us in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 that in the middle, uh, Daniel calls them weeks or, or periods of sevens. He says in this last period of seven, this Antichrist prince is going to make a covenant, and in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years or 42 months. You go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, and there are two prophets that prophesy exactly three and a half years. You look at their ministry. One of them is an Elijah-type figure. An Elijah-type figure. He stops rain for three and a half years. How long did Elijah stop rain? Three and a half years. When Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's coming down the mountain, they saw Elijah and Moses on that mount, and they asked Jesus, how is it that Elijah comes first to restore all things? And Jesus answers this, truly Elijah will come to restore all things, but another Elijah-type figure has come if you will receive it. And the light went on for those guys, and they understood it was John the Baptist. But another Elijah-type figure is coming. And along with these two witnesses, they prophesy for 30, 42 months, exactly three and a half years, and they are put to death, and everybody is so glad. They give gifts, and they send celebrations, and the last... 42 months are called the great tribulation. Jesus says this, When therefore you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, Jesus is quoting that, standing where? Standing in the holy place. That's exactly what Daniel says he's going to do. He's going to set himself up to be worshipped, and he's going to blaspheme the name of the God of heaven. Who reads, let him understand, Jesus says. Then let him which is in Judea flee into the mountains. For there will be great tribulation such as not since the beginning of the world to know to this time, nor shall there ever be. And we're told in Revelation chapter 12 that for three and a half years again, the woman who gives birth to this child who's reigning with 12 stars, you know it's the nation of Israel, he hides them in the wilderness for 42 months. Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem his nation, and all those who are saved will be raptured and we will come with him. But in those last 42 months, the Antichrist will be given him a mouth-speaking great swelling words of blasphemy. Power will be given him to continue for 42 months. Daniel's three and a half years, the great tribulation, the desolation that Daniel predicts that Jesus told us to to be aware of. He will open his mouth. He will blaspheme against God. He will blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those that dwell in heaven. He will give unto him to make war with the saints. Those who are converted during the tribulation period will be put to death and be martyred. They will overcome them by the power of Uh, that is given to him and all kindreds, all tongues, all nations that dwell upon the earth will worship him and no one will buy or sell unless they take his mark. Boy, we've gone a long way this morning, haven't we? 
from the Assyrians to this new Roman Empire. Well, what, a, what, a, what kind of conclusion can we, can we draw this morning? One of the things that you and I can rest assured in is that this book is complete. When John the Revelator died, he says, Cursed is anyone who adds anything else to this book of prophecy. Our Bible is completely sufficient for everything we believe and for the way that we live our lives. Second, every word can be trusted. Every little detail, every jot and tittle, none of it will pass away until all of it is accomplished. Third, you and I, we can try to violate God's principles. Just like Israel tried to violate God's principle of the sabbatical rest, and we might get away with it. But a great preacher named Billy Sunday had a sermon, and it was called Payday Someday. And that's true. We can try to break God's word, but eventually it will only break us. So we need to submit to its authority. Since Christ is coming and he fulfilled the first advent literally down to the T, we can expect the future events to be fulfilled the same way and that God has a future for the nation of Israel and God has an expected plan for our lives and that we can trust him. Most importantly, if Jesus Christ is coming again to judge this earth, how will he find us? I hope he will find us faithfully serving our Lord. The last thing that I want to just challenge us today, if there's anybody here who's questioning the reliability of the Bible, because your salvation, your eternal destiny rests on the authority and the trustworthiness of this testimony, that Jesus Christ died for your sin, that God is holy, that God exacts a payment for sin. And so we need to repent. Repent simply means meta, another, noia means to think. So I need to change my thinking. Have I changed my mind about sin? It's an offense to a holy God. Have I changed my mind about God's holiness? God doesn't trifle with sin. Have I changed my mind about what it really means to be good? 2 Corinthians says that they compare themselves by themselves and therefore they are not wise. Our understanding of good is relative. It's not objective, nor is it absolute. God's goodness is both. We need to repent and change our minds about grace alone, that there's nothing good that I can bring that earns salvation. When Peter was trying to put all this together on the day of Pentecost, he said this, Repent ye therefore and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, which before was preached to you, and listen to this part, 
whom the heaven must receive. Jesus went back to heaven. The heaven must receive him until the times of the restitution of all things. All those glorious and grand prophecies in Ezekiel about one king, one nation, a beautiful, glorious glorious temple under the rule of a Davidic line, all of those things are going to be filled, the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by all of his holy prophets since the world began. So I hope this morning, if nothing else, I've intrigued you about some of these Old Testament stories. And I've tried to demonstrate to you that our Bible is so reliable, so trustworthy. So what does that mean practically? It means the promises that you find are true and they are yes and they are amen. So when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, he means it. When Jesus says, I will feed you because I feed the birds, he means it. When Jesus says, I will clothe you because I clothe the lilies of the fields, he means it. When Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body and can't kill the soul, he really means it. We can trust him. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forevermore. Thank God that he's preserved his revelation to us. And our faith stands on a solid rock. Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its reliability. God, thank you that there was no accident, there was no great conspiracy that happened over 1,500 years. Forty different authors who never met each other, who wrote at different time periods. Some of them spoke different languages and lived on different continents. But God, this Bible is so violently attacked by so many people, yet God, your word continues to stand. And I pray, God, that we will never be ashamed of it, to stand and say, yes, I am a Bible-believing Christian. I pray this for North Valley Bible Church in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.